This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Nate. How's it going? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing pretty good. It's a beautiful day. It feels like Friday, but the days don't really matter anymore, so it could be Friday. Who knows? It's Friday somewhere. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. So today, Ron couldn't join us because he's got to ship all the things. So good luck, Ron. Today on the show, we have Nick Haskins, who's going to be joining us. And for the last six years, he's been working as a solo dev full-time for CG Cookie, which is a custom LMS platform that teaches Blender. And I have a little bit of background with Blender, so that's pretty cool. About a year after he started working there, he launched Blender Market, a marketplace for selling plugins and tools for Blender. Both of these sites started on WordPress, but eventually outgrew the platform. Without any prior experience with Ruby on Rails, he built both apps from scratch and then spent the next few years fixing, learning, and maintaining those platforms. These days, the Blender Market has its own developer, but much of the code that he authored still runs to this day. Nate, welcome to the show. I mean, Nick, sorry. My brain... (laughs) Nate and Nick, that's good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So the main reason we brought you on the show is you just published a book not too long ago. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I just published uh, Playbook 39. It's a Rails book that kind of takes a top-down approach on how I, on my techniques and my approaches to the apps. I'm a solo developer, so I don't work with a team. So a lot of the techniques that I use are very just simplistic. I take very simple approaches to things. And I thought that it would be neat to kind of share this approach because we see just a lot of JavaScript heavy things these days. Everything is powered by React and Vue and, and Angular. But I wanted to kind of share that you can build these complex user interfaces without any of that stuff. I'm just kind of using the same tooling that we've had for you know, the better part of a decade. That's kind of why that book kind of came out. It seems like you've put in a lot of, I mean, you've been very entrepreneurial in your career as a solo developer. It looked like you started on WordPress, kind of offering some of this stuff for Blender. I am curious about your experience with Blender. I've just dabbled. Sounds like Andrew's got a little bit of experience too. But yeah, what led into building the WordPress plugins and, and things like that? And then what made you decide to move off of WordPress into, you know, Ruby on Rails? So funny enough, I don't think I've ever actually opened Blender. <laughs> I built the whole, you know, learning management system to to teach people how to use Blender, but I've never actually opened Blender before. I think it's very neat. I think it's amazing what people can do with this. And I think some of the illustrations that come out, they just look like real images. And so I, I always thought it was fascinating, but I never had the the time to kind of dive into that. You know, CG Cookie, we, it started back on WordPress and we quickly outgrew WordPress because of the number of custom tables that we had. So when we had more custom tables than what WordPress shipped with, we realized that was the time that we out we have outgrown WordPress. WordPress is a great CMS for blogs and small sites. But when you get into learning platforms with a lot of expectations from that, um, we started to need something more. So we started exploring other options. A friend of mine had recommended Ruby on Rails. I was really apprehensive at first because I was so used to writing PHP and I was so used to WordPress, but there's a lot of similarities between the two. So I, I picked it up relatively quickly. 
and built Seiju Cookie. Then a year later, we built the Blender Market, moved everybody off of WordPress uh, onto Rails, and and yeah, that was uh, that was a fourteen hour day migrating all of that content. Yeah, but that hindsight. was a little scary moving a moving a operating business to a new platform. Yeah, it was you know from WordPress to, you know, on MySQL to Ruby and Postgre. It was it was a it was quite the feat to to migrate all that stuff over. We spent fourteen hours that day on that Slack call, and that was the longest Slack call that we've had to date. Looking back on it, I've learned so much more since then. And now we're getting to ready to kind of move CG Cookie again over to a newer platform. And so I'm excited to kind of dive into this again and uh, see how many hours we can shave off that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got a few questions. I'm really curious, since, since you're not really a Blender user yourself, like what's the narrative that kind of walked you into being involved with Blender tutorials and, and making that available on WordPress? So in, I started on WordPress and when I started on WordPress, I created a a plugin called ASAP Story Engine. And this is a free plugin. I built a freemium business around this. So we were the free plugin was out, but we sold themes and enhancements to this plugin. That started to get really popular. I exited that and I started to look for something that was a bit more stable. I wanted a job to have a, a, a constant paycheck coming in because I was just starting a family. And so Jonathan Williamson is one of the co-owners of CG Cookie. And he has a twin brother named Pippin Williamson. Pippin runs easy digital downloads in the WordPress space. And he told me that CG Cookie was hiring. His brother was hiring. And so I applied there. My cover letter was, I am the dough to your cookie and you need me, K-N-E-A-D. And that was the cover letter of my resume to that job. And, and speaking back with Wes and Jonathan, they say that was, that was pretty much what landed me that job <laughs> was the cover letter. I don't even think I did a cover letter for CodeFund. Yeah, that was kind of organic happening all through Twitter and pair programming and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah, you're missing out on Blender. Blender is, uh, is a lot of fun. I don't have as much experience with that as some other tools in that ecosystem, but for a while I wanted to be a virtual reality game designer. So I got a lot of experience with that, but it is tedious and it is a time suck. So yeah, stay away if you can. You know, inevitably you watch some of the tutorials and stuff when you're when you're building this stuff, and it's the software looks really complicated, and it, it makes sense that CG Cookie's been there for ten years teaching people how to do this stuff, because yeah, it it is pretty intense. So I have to ask, what convinced you to write a book versus I don't know, maybe keeping it all in your head and saving yourself all the time, or doing videos or blogging? What what kind of made you jump at writing the full book? There, there was a couple of reasons. There was a specific tweet set out by, I don't even know his name. I don't know. It's like a, it's like patio 11. I forgot his handle, but he works for Stripe and he had put out a tweet. Like what we need is this book on design practices, design patterns and techniques used because most of these SaaS apps are the same users and accounts and these fundamental principles, you know, don't change very much. So that along with you know, seeing this rise in popularity of JavaScript frameworks and being like, you know, I can build these same things with, you know, the tech that we've had for, for years, seeing new developers kind of go into React immediately instead of learning the fundamentals. That was another reason that, that pushed me to kind of push this book out. So it, in the end, I'm glad I did. It's out there. It's something that I think I've always wanted to do is push a book out there. But now that it's out there, I'm happy that it's, you know, I've gotten 
great feedback from it. I've not had any negative feedback. And I don't know if anybody's too, just too scared to say anything or, or what, but, but yeah, the, the, the feedback has been great. It's been greatly received. I'm curious about the, the title of the book, Playbook 39. Where, where does that come from? 39 years old. And that was, I think, one of the, the things I, I always wanted to make a book before I turned 40. And so that was the 39 part of it. The playbook, uh, I thought of this book as like, you could just reference it because in the end, there's lots of different recipes on how to you know, build like notifications and how to build forums really easily and quickly. And so I thought this could be kind of like a reference type playbook type thing. And I was also inspired by the a title of a cookbook called Romans 20. And it's basically 20 principles for cooking. It goes into the science of things like that. And so I was kind of inspired by that title. In hindsight, I probably would have chosen something that gave some kind of inkling as to what the book was about. But I think it, it makes it stand out a little bit because people remember that instead of, you know, just a generic book name. Yeah, no, I, I like it. And your, your site design is, is really nice. It's very appealing. One of the interesting things to me, just kind of going over your table of contents, I mean, you, you touch on topics like market research, uh, you know, handling sales tax and doing things like that. And then in managing a community, adding gamification to your app and stuff like that. So clearly it's, it covers more than just the technical aspects. You're bringing a lot of your business learnings, even in the WordPress days of how to, you know, attract and retain customers. And if you had to sum the book up in, I don't know, just an elevator pitch, what would it be? It would probably be a easy, a quick reference guide for building interactive web apps with minimal tooling and, and simplistic approaches. And, and probably for the, the individual developer or a small team? The individual developer, yeah. There's a lot of fundamentals that change when you're on a team. There's a lot of things that I can get away with working solo. I don't write a lot of tests. I don't do test-driven development. That's one of the things I think that I can get away with doing because I'm on my own. So I have a very intimate connection with the code base. So, but for individual developers or people on a team that just wants an overall minimal approach to building technology. Yeah, I'm curious, do you touch on those? Do you, do you call those types of things out in the book or is it just kind of like this underlying theme across everything that you're teaching uh, in terms of small team like this? We're, we're optimized here and the lessons are all you know, geared towards the individual developer or a very small team. Or do you explicitly call it out and say like, if you were on a bigger team, this, is my, this might be how you do it, but this is what we're focused on. It's, there doesn't give any mention. It's kind of agnostic in that approach. There isn't a mention of, I am a solo developer and most of these techniques are, are great for moving fast when you're a solo developer, but there isn't really a lot of stuff that's touched on um, being a, uh, on a team of devs. I've never been on a team of devs, ever, I don't think. So it's, even since kindergarten, I can remember I was telling my boss earlier, you know, when they tell you to pair up, you know, choose somebody to pair up with, I was very adamant about being on my own. I just want to work on my own. I work better on my own, just kind of go off and look to my own devices. And I think that's where a lot of these techniques were kind of born out of. I mean, it sounds like it very much aligns with the Rails doctrine, right? The, the Rails doctrine is focused on empowering small teams or small groups of people or even individuals to do big things, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that, 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 makes, that makes sense, definitely. So if, if you were to kind of contrast the, the balance between business uh, topics 
and and how they interleave with with your technical topics in the book. How much is technical versus how much is business oriented? And and how do you see the distinction there? I would say it's mostly technically oriented. There is a lot of theory in the beginning of the book. And I was really reluctant to put that in there because it's very highly opinionated and it's kind of based on real world firsthand experiences. But I, I felt that was important to leave in there to kind of give some context behind why a lot of these architectural decisions were made in, in the rest of the book. But yeah, definitely more, more technically oriented. You know, we, through five years at CG Cookie, we have built this, basically a whole social network. You know, we have followers and notifications and at mentions and anything you could think of to be thrown into a social network has been built into CG Cookie for better or for worse you know, courses and, and taking courses and submitting exercises and, and grading exercises and everything, managing team campaigns and building custom dashboards and events and to track these events. I think being a solo dev, you build a lot of stuff. So you become very close to the business because you're building all of this tech to see how it is doing at a general overview. So I think a lot of that was, was reflected in the book too. Yeah, Nate, a lot of the code in here looks like code you write. <laughs> That's why when I was I was looking through it, I was like, oh, this is really simple. I was like, oh, I know how to do this. I'm this is the type of code we write. And I was like, that's the type of code Nate writes. The very simple sticking to the Rails basics, you know, using concerns, turbo links, which you have chapters on. I thought one of the coolest parts about this book to me, because I I picked it up right as you were doing the pre-sale. And I haven't seen a good or and or recent book in the Rails ecosystem that talks as much about, you know, Stripe and multi-tenancy and kind of like building that entire platform, which is really cool, which I think if anything else is worth picking up just for those chapters. Yeah, it goes into a lot. You know, there's, you know, from CG Cookie, you know, as your basic membership a recurring membership system to Blender Market, which is a multi-vendor marketplace with payouts, then to Mavency, which is your multi-tenant application where everybody is connected through Stripe Connect. Being the developer for all these years, I've gone through, you know, from the very beginning where we just had the simple checkout modal and then Stripe Elements was released, and then moving into the actual card reader, you know, Stripe terminal for for swiping credit cards. Being the developer in all these startups have given me this wide range of experience across the gamut of, of anything you can probably imagine on Stripe. So I felt it important to, to include all that stuff because it's, it's hard to kind of figure out how this stuff is all supposed together. Especially if you're a new, new developer, you know, should you use Stripe or should you use Checkout or should you use Elements or you know, another tool completely? I felt it was important to kind of include all that in there. Yeah, I've, I've never actually used Stripe in a business setting, but I did a bunch of tutorials with it. And I hear from my buddies, Chris Oliver and Jason Charns, that working with Stripe and Braintree and PayPal can just be an absolute nightmare. So I was, yeah. uh, I was very excited I, to see those chapters. I had some curse words in that Braintree chapter that I decided to remove <laughs> just in case a small, just in case a young adult wanted to pick up this book and read it, but Braintree is not fun to work with. Their API is just, it's very limiting in what you can do. And it's very different with Stripe's API. So yeah, uh, we've gotten spoiled with Stripe for sure. The developer experience is uh, bar none. 
Yeah, your your payouts chapter is something I'm I'm very interested in. I'm gonna I'm probably gonna have to pick this book up myself. Yeah, the for we, there's nothing on Stripe payouts, ironically enough, because this was system was actually just built for Blender Market. Blender Market now has its own developer. For many years, I was running both apps and I was getting spread very thin across them. So I think it was about a year. It may have been even a year and a half ago now. Blender Market. Uh, hired their own developer, Rom. She's a very talented engineer. She runs things there now and they had just released straight payouts. So for the longest time, Jonathan would manually do these payouts. So the, you don't want to make a mistake when you're paying that kind of money to, to PayPal accounts. So it's now on an automated process, but, but yeah, it was a nice upgrade for them. Yeah, definitely something that we could use at CudFund. Some of those, those lessons, we may have to tap your knowledge around that and, and your connections. Once we get a little closer to automating some of those things, it looks like you're, so you're in the process of taking a CG cookie and creating a new platform, or at least one based on that called Maven Seed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, we started on WordPress with CG cookie, then they moved into Rails and for the last four or five years, it's been running great, but we started, we will always want to improve. Software always has to be improved. It can never just be done with in most cases. But so Mavenseed is the next evolution of the learning management platform that we have built and refined over the years on CG Cookie. So in CG Cookie at its core is this course builder. So we've learned a lot of lessons on how to let content creators build courses with lessons and exercises and submissions and quizzes and the whole nine yards. But at the same time, we also wanted to enable people to sell digital downloads because that's kind of the attainable part of you know content-based business. So Mavenseed, we built Mavenseed as the content management system for independent creators. And that is basically our new home for TG Cookie. But we thought it would be cool to make it available to everyone. So CG Cookie is going to build its entire business on Mavenseed, but anybody else could come along and build an entire business on Mavenseed as well. So you basically will have your own site and you can map your own custom domain to it. You can sell courses and downloads and you have your own community forum and kind of can build your content business from the ground up on Mavenseed. And so we'll be migrating to there by the end of this year. So, and part of that process includes me building all the tools to make that happen. So we want to, you know, I'll be building importers, you know, more importers for, for people to import customers and subscriptions. And so by the time it's done, anybody would be able to come on and import everything using the same tools that we built to import our own business on there. So, and that work is that, principally you, but uh, maybe with some input from your business partners and, and things like that. But are you driving most of the tech there? I am. I'm the sole developer there. I do all the design and the development. It's co-owned between me and my boss, uh, my boss and I. So Wes and Jonathan run CG Cookie. And so Babe and Seed is a partnership between myself and CG Cookie. So I've grown to be, I've grown to be friends with these people over the last six years. So we work really well together. So it's it's now it's a it's co-owned between myself and CG Cookie and yep I do all the the dev and the design of things for the app. So I'm curious. I did want to touch on this. You are using throughout this book no Webpacker and very hardcore jQuery. And to preface this a little bit, when I first started learning web development, jQuery was already kind of being it was being said like don't use jQuery. We have better tools now. So I never really learned jQuery, although I never really learned JavaScript either. So that's kind of a moot point. But 
I was curious just because you have a lot of jQuery in here. I have spent several very gut-wrenching hours screwing with Turbo Links and jQuery. So I'm just curious about why you chose not to use Webpacker, whether you think that's the right choice if you're starting a new app and kind of like, yeah, your general thoughts around that and that kind of ecosystem. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm almost 40 years old, so I tend to use libraries that are very mature and very, I guess, stable. I've been using jQuery since my WordPress days. And then to move over into Rails, it was Rails 5 at the time. So there wasn't a Webpacker. I think Webpacker was came in 6 or 6.1. But I didn't feel the need to move everything over because I didn't see any kind of value that that would add besides what I was already getting at the moment. So you know, to just manually throw these files in there and to manually have the JavaScript files in there when you need them, if you need, you know, select drop down you know, JavaScript lib, just copy the, the single JavaScript lib file into the JavaScript and then, and then that's it. If I were starting a new project, I probably would not use Webpacker just because it's... And I realize things are going towards that, but I'm still just the... I would rather get on my hands and knees and clean the ground with the rag than grab a mop kind of person if that makes any sense. So I'd rather just know what I'm getting and doing all these things manually. I think it's a little bit more simplistic approach. But at the same time, I haven't used Webpacker. So, but all I see are people having problems with Webpacker and, and, and on Reddit and things like that. So it makes me apprehensive about it. Uh, I was going to say at the very, the, the very least, it's a, you're demonstrating that it's still possible to use these tools and build successful businesses with them and on top of these uh, technologies still, right? I mean, it's still a viable choice, even though it's completely out of fashion. Or, I'm yeah, sorry, that's I, exactly right. Yeah, and maybe, uh, we'll be, uh, maybe 10 years down the road, I'll be that, that COBOL developer that people are calling <laughs> to, to fix their applications. <laughs> and you know what? I think I'm perfectly happy with that. I could have used your help struggling with jQuery. I mean, because like I said, I think Webpacker came in Rails 5.2 or 5.1. And I've pretty much only developed in Webpacker. And we have a few things that are still like, we have a, we're using a bootstrap template at CodeFun that has, you know, it's not using modern JavaScript. So because it's not doing that, the level of pain there is, is kind of high. But I feel like I'm kind of the opposite of the people who say that Webpacker is really hard because for me, doing it the other way with the, with Sprockets is, incredibly hard and I, I just do not understand it. But yeah, it's interesting to kind of watch those discussions kind of play out because from my perspective, the developers who have been coding in Rails with jQuery for a long time are the ones who are saying, okay, well, you know, this is, just makes no sense. And for me, who kind of started with that kind of in the ES6 era, I'm like, this jQuery, it makes no sense. I'm like, why... How do I get this thing? I just need this object. How do I get this object? Yeah, it's it's funny because it's it's like the I don't know it's like the stick shift in in automatic car I guess transmission. You know, people have started with one and that's all they know, and then something else comes along and it's maybe a little bit foreign. And I admit I do have some apprehension to any kind of new tech that comes, like stimulus. I've been wanting to try that out because I, I see some advantages, but I don't see any immediate value to changing everything just to, to kind of move to that. So yeah, there's a, it is a little bit being guarded on what else new comes in to the stack because the stacks, as I know them now, are very, I know them very well, very intimately connected with them. I know that the causes and effects of what would happen or putting a, a new lib or something in. 
That makes a lot of sense, especially as a solo developer, right? I mean, you're, you're weighing that against your time. And so the payoff has to be very obvious. So I am curious, though, uh, in terms of like when you chose to go with Rails, how, how new was Rails when you moved off of WordPress? Like you knew you had to go somewhere, right? Because you you'd outgrown WordPress. But what made you decide on Rails? A good friend of mine recommended Ruby on Rails. And that's all it took. His name is Eugene. I trust him. He's a very talented engineer. He had a lot more experience than I do. And he, knowing that what we had built on WordPress, knowing my background, he recommended Ruby on Rails. And that was, that was enough for me to kind of go on that. You know, we explored at the time, you know, there were still job, these JavaScript frameworks. It just seemed like you would have to write a lot more code because I, my job was to get these functioning apps, cgcookie.com on WordPress and get it over on the Rails as quickly as possible, right? So yeah, there's a lot of uh, trade-off on the decisions, but moving to Rails, it just, it made sense because it made things go a lot faster. I don't think I could have built those things up quickly enough using anything else other than Ruby on Rails at that time. It's funny how our relationships kind of can have such an impact in that area. Like the, especially if it's someone that you respect or view as a mentor or just view as smarter than you in general, it could definitely take you on some wonderful and or terrible rides. Because I, I was talking to a, a developer, a friend of mine. He was like, well, yeah, but he, he was, we were arguing about concerns, which seems to be like my latest argument train. But I was like, yeah, well, Nate thinks they're good. And I like, it, it makes sense and yada, yada. He's like, well, if Nate told you to jump off a bridge, would you? And I was like, <laughs> he probably would have a good reason. So yeah, I'd probably jump. <laughs> yeah oh, man. that's funny somebody's recommendation can be powerful especially you know if you want to talk about like twitter accounts with you know fifty thousand followers there it can be a little bit dangerous because you can sway people one way or the other but so yeah it's interesting how that how that can transform speaking of twitter i saw you voicing some frustration the other day about I guess, interaction counts. Because I think you said that you've been on Twitter for like 10 years, right? Yeah, 2008, man. Too much. Too much Twittering. Yeah. It's a long um, time. Yeah, it is a long time. You know, it's, Twitter's an interesting place. I, I'm just, I'm a very highly opinionated person. I tend to be very cynical. I'm a, I'm a very, I'm a realist. And I don't think people generally are attracted to that. So I've gone through some you know, frustrations. Why don't I have 50,000 followers down to, I don't want 50,000 followers. I don't want to have to worry about what am I going to tweet? Is this going to resonate with people? Are people going to get mad? I would rather just put this stuff out there. And if you like it, you don't. If you want to follow me, then there's the button. But um, it's kind of just, it, it is what it is. I don't think everybody's meant to be an influencer or, or have this massive audience. But I think it's important that everybody have some type of small voice, you know, no matter how large or small that may be. I'm curious on going back to your technical approach, you're, you're kind of sticking close to jQuery and not introducing Webpacker. What other places do you recommend that people deviate from like the Rails golden path? JavaScript ERB partials. That's probably the next biggest one. You know, I think a lot of developers are convinced they need React or they need Vue or they need Angular. And then these tools were or at least in the case of React, was developed by Facebook to solve their scaling problems with their interfaces. So for a new developer to, to, to believe that they need this to build these interfaces is not correct at all. So 
you know, the use of JavaScript ERB, the use of those partials and rendering partials to have this real time like effect, I think is very, is very overlooked. That simple nature of things is one of my favorite parts of Rails. Is there any, any place that you recommend that we don't follow the Rails way? Where would we want to deviate from Rails? Like, so for example, like you're not, you're not pulling in Webpacker and, and going down the modern JavaScript path with Rails. And that comes out of the box with Rails 6, right? And so what other recommendations would you have for a Rails developer to, like, this is a good place to deviate to even do something more pragmatic than maybe what you get out of the box with Rails? Are there, are there things like that that you recommend? I think anytime you're wanting to add something or add a library or, or change how something is done, just question like, why, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, what is the, what is the main point, you know, of this library? You know, is it, are we doing all of this just to prevent a page from refreshing after submitting a, a form? You can let the page refresh. There are some instances where it's, where it's okay to, to not have to, you know, go with the flow with things, but, I guess it just comes by a case-by-case basis. And, and also, if you're working on a team, there's going to be uh, other team members with other opinions. And so you're going to be up against them you know, at the same time. So it's, it's well, it's, I guess, take some compromise there, depending on what it is. Now, that's a really pragmatic advice to think about your dependencies. Like, why are you adding another library? What is it, what is it really providing for you? And are the trade-offs actually worth it? Do you understand the trade-offs in the first place, right? I think a lot of people add things that they don't even understand the trade-offs on. I'm very like-minded in terms of, of being kind of wary of, of at least the, the modern JavaScript you know, as a default choice. I think there certainly are use cases where it makes sense. But as a default choice, I don't know that it's, it's something that should be conventional wisdom. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, the dependency thing specifically has... I don't, I don't know what happened or when, but at some point, I, I think I started getting more into performance and I think that's when it started to kind of become a bigger deal for me because I will, I will go to war over dependencies at this point, like adding dependencies in the app, especially ones that are adding just like nice functionality, but that would be easy to add yourself. But it's, you know, it takes five seconds to add a gem, but it doesn't take five seconds to maintain it, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of technical overhead that comes with adding a gem. And sometimes there's this black box of functionality that you're not sure what's coming with. Before I add a gem, I, I read the GitHub repo. I go through the commits. I read the source code. I want to see, like, is this gem just doing this one simple thing that I could just do in four lines, you know, with the concern or something? So, yeah, you're, you're, there's definitely... Uh, that's accurate. Yeah. So, one thing I did want to touch on... and. This is for some, okay. I saw two things on Twitter feedback related to the book. One was someone said your website was ugly and I just didn't understand that. And I kind of assumed they were colorblind. That was like just such a weird dig for me to like read. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, I've seen, I've seen terrible, terrible things. So, but the other thing I saw was pricing. So I was be interested if you wanted to talk about that. What made you come to, the price points you did because it is a little pricey, but it's not just a book. Like you provide sample materials, a sample application. I went through that application. I definitely saved some of those gems you had. I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a gem you could just use this for. The pricing, I, I don't think it was a hard decision to make. I think it was harder to keep it at that price and not drop the price based on people saying it was too expensive. 
But the way I looked at it was, you know, for better or for worse, Rails is not the the first choice for people these days for for web developers, right? So I knew that I wouldn't push thousands of copies, and so I wanted to price it high because I knew it wouldn't it wouldn't push that many copies out. There's another book that I'm working on, completely unrelated, but it's more generalistic, and so that could be a that anybody could pick this book up. So it's got a much cheaper price point than than a hundred dollar book. And I think another part of that is the average cost of a college textbook is like a hundred bucks. So knowing what was in this and knowing that it came with this Rails application that you could stand up and kind of build off of, it was a easy easy choice to make to to price it that high. And another another cool thing with a high price is you have room to be flexible now. So for people to see, oh, this book is on sale for you know, forty or fifty dollars off. That's that's a good amount off of the of that large price. So I think it made it a little bit easier to kind of experiment with things there. Yeah, that kind of reminds me that you have a chapter in the book about gamification. That kind of reminds me of kind of a similar thing where you know it's easier to create incentives for people to buy it at a high price point. I think that kind of speaks to your marketing experience just because, you know, if it's a $110 book and all of a sudden it's on sale for, I don't know, $50, then that's a major steal. I haven't paid this much for a book and probably since, well, in college, they're not $100. I hate to tell you, they are three, I've paid three or $400 for a college textbook before. Oh, so they're way more than that. Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. They are infinitely more than that. And they, wow. then they all come with a, like an access code for like the online section. It's just, it's terrible. Gotcha. But yeah, you, you kind of thinking about it in that perspective, like you are getting like a course here, basically. Like you could totally take all the information in this book, start your own company with it. So you kind of have to like keep that in mind just because, you know, this is like, it's a book quote unquote, but it's more than that. You can't just compare this to. I don't know, Huckleberry Finn or something. Like you're getting so much more and then your marketability going into the future is higher. You're going to know more. You're going to have all that great experience that you've been able to instill in this book. So I would encourage people who are considering it, but hesitant because of that price. Like I've spent way more than this at like a bar in a night. So (laughs) you got to think about it like that. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, it's hard to compare apples and oranges to like products. When you look at, you know, Tailwind and, you know, they're, they're great products. And this, you know, I think it goes up to like 250 or I forget what the price was. And it's like people are paying this for, for HTML and CSS and, and things like that. Surely there is a market for, for people to buy it. And there, and there has been just close, close to crossing over $7,000 in sales on that. And so it's, it's been worth it. It was, a, I think it was $1,000 for the editing and the design of the book. But that was completely worth it because some of the comments I've gotten saying that this is the best design tech book they've seen in a while. And that, that made me feel really good because I knew that the design, it had to be designed well. In addition, that high price point, there's, there's a certain amount of expectations, I think, that come with that. So having that nice, nice beautiful design and the copy editing really, I think, really helped. So kind of on that note, I'm curious about the tools that you used while writing the book, like putting it all together. And what was that workflow like? What tools did you use? I'm very curious. I have these uh, pipe dreams of of maybe one day writing a book myself. Yeah. Uh, 
a very simple approach. Obviously, you know, my, my tooling is simple. We live very simply. So everything I do is just kind of simplified. I just used Apple Pages. And I'm not sure I would use it again because it's very hard to lay out things the way you want them to. It's, it's not easy to do a design in Pages. The editor, he actually pulled it into either Affinity Publisher or InDesign. And so no, that, that type of area, you have much more flexibility in designing it and things like that. But you also have to have somebody that knows that program too. So the, what I recommend is just start, start writing. You know, it took, I think, four or six weeks to write it. It was not linear. I bounced between section and section. And there for a while, I was not wanting to continue with it just because of the seeing people and, you know, react to this and view this and Rails is dying and, and whatever else. And so, but I just, I just stuck with it. A few lines a day, a few paragraphs a day, getting it in there and then worrying, letting the copy editor kind of shuffle, shuffle things around and making it sound good. That, that was it. Just Apple Pages. And then he did the rest. No, I love that. And that even dovetails into another topic I wanted to ask you about. And that is your, your lifestyle. So you're a, single, you're a single developer managing a lot of products. You're, you live out of a, a off-grid in an RV and you're kind of mobile that way. Can you talk about that kind of nomadic lifestyle and how long you've been doing it and how much you, if you've enjoyed it? And... Yeah. So, you know, when I exited ASAP Story Engine, that was through a broker. I was able to have enough to buy a, a cabin in the mountains. We moved our family there. And for years, we, were, we, we had made it. You know, you got the American dream. You, you've done it, right? Well, then we started to get bored. We're very antsy. We like to just constantly keep moving and constantly keep seeing and doing new things and not staying static. You just kind of get complacent with life in general. So we wanted to shake things up again. We always talked about RV traveling, but we never really made the jump until we were able to get this RV. And then we just stopped asking questions and we just launched. That was a year ago now. Actually, uh, a year ago, in a couple of days, it'll be. Been on the road for a year now. And, and when we got on the road, we we're thinking we're just going to stay in campgrounds. It's going to be great. But when we got to Colorado, all the campgrounds were full. Apparently, those things book up months in advance. So we had no choice but to do this thing called boondocking, which is to go and park your rig on public land, national forests or, or some other land and without connections to water or sewer or electricity. And from then on, we were hooked. You know, the privacy the freedom that you have is we, you couldn't pay us to go probably stay in a campground. And by this point now, our rig is completely powered by solar. You just plug your laptop into the wall and you have electricity night and day. It's been quite the interesting experience. And yeah, we, we, are, we are living it up currently in a national forest in central Oregon. It sounds like you're really well suited to that lifestyle. Was it a, was it a tough adjustment at first? It was. I think I actually teared up when we left because it was just a, a new adjustment. We live in a very small RV. This is a 24-foot motorhome. And there's four of us in here. It's my wife and our two kids, our two boys. And so it was quite the adjustment to move into such a small space because I like my space, you know, to have my space, especially when I go work in the morning. But we've been able to work around that, you know, with these outdoor shelters that pop up. So I'll go out in the morning, work for several hours outside in, in the little gazebo out there, heater, nice uh, plush chairs. So yeah, it, it took about six to eight months to get used to it. 
but now it feels very much normal. I can't imagine living in a normal sticks and bricks house again. Curious how much COVID-19 has kind of affected your being able to maneuver around. I'm assuming that some parks are closed and I don't know, but I, I would assume. Yeah, so zero. It's affected a zero because we haven't been in a campground in, I don't know, it's been seven or eight months. So we rely completely on our solar. There are RV parks that are open that we can go to to get our water. And then I bring it back and then we put it in the rig. So because the land is national forest and it's land managed by the Bureau of Land Management, which is our government, so all these federal lands have been open the entire time. So this is dispersed camping in national forest. They have not shut that down. They have shut down all the campsites inside of national forests, but you are still allowed to take your rig and go park off a road somewhere. So that's what we do. And I have two internet devices, two carriers, one through Verizon, one through AT&T. And between the two of them, we always manage to get a signal. And we have enough signal to... It's often fast enough to watch Hulu or stream Netflix. So we have very much a normal life in, inside this thing, even though we're in the, in the middle of the forest somewhere. So what's, what's been your favorite place uh, that you've been so far? That's a good question. There's a lot of places in Colorado that were, that were great. Telluride, Colorado was an amazing town. A very touristy uh, free gondola you can take up into the mountains. Next to Telluride, probably Central Oregon, the Bend area has been one of our favorite parts because uh, we're more mountainy, foresty people. Like our cabin in the Appalachian Mountains we still have is now vacation rental. That's in the forest. And so we enjoy the, the forest the forest setting out of, out of any places. So yeah, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, we've really enjoyed it up here. Well, hit me up if you're ever, if you're ever near Park City, Utah. Yeah, we were in Utah last year. We were in Joe's Valley. I'm not sure if you've heard it. That's a central, central Utah, I think. We're boulders, so we, we climb rocks. And that is one of the most, that's a like world-renowned bouldering destination is in Joe's Valley. So we were there last fall. We'll probably hit there again this fall. So yeah, let's do that. Teach you the ropes. So we're kind of coming close on time, but I did have one last question I wanted to ask you. And full disclosure, I totally stole this from Brittany Martin, who runs the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. And just shout out to her. She's an awesome podcast host and just a delight to listen to and super friendly. She's going to be on this show in a week or two. But she ends most of her shows by asking her guests what their thoughts on the future of the Ruby on Rails communities are. And I'm curious, I kind of want to start doing that because it's a it's an interesting question. I feel like everyone, given their like perspectives, will answer it differently. But yeah, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby on Rails communities? I think that Rails will continue to decline in popularity, but that may be completely turned around with the pending launch of Hay by David Hanson, Hanmeyer, and Basecamp. I think when you have products like that launch on Rails, it, it kind of breathes new life and maybe will cause people to kind of think differently maybe about Rails to begin with. We have to keep seeing projects launch to keep people excited about it. I think otherwise, it's just going to continue to shrink um, and it will just one day just be a niche industry. So as long as we keep having things like nice products and, and books launches and, and things to keep it relevant, I think that's, that's key. Yeah, it's been just kind of in the past month or two, it's been a lot of activity in the Rails communities. So, I mean, you had your book launch. Noel Rappin is coming out with his book on 
building modern front ends with Rails. Hay's coming out. We've been getting a ton of buzz on seamless reflex recently. So yeah, it's been, I think it seems like there's been a little bit of wind breathing in the community recently. So I think that's, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Definitely agreed. Well, Nick, where can people find you online? Assuming you want to be found. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twitter.com slash NP Haskins. That's pretty much where, where I make my home. And where can people pick up the book? Playbook39.com. All, all one word. Awesome. Thank you for coming, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Listeners, we will catch you back next week with more awesome content. You can leave us a like or review on your podcast player of choice. I don't normally ask for that, but Justin has been starting to rev up a little bit on me. So please leave uh, likes and reviews and that would be awesome. And we will catch you back next time. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.